postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey guys, it's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back, man. Welcome back to another season of the Story Church podcast. We're going to do a brand new Podinar series. Just finished wrapping up Understanding the Secular Mind, by the way. So if this is the first time hearing the podcast and you haven't heard the previous season, uh, Padanar Season 1, Understanding the Secular Mind, uh, definitely go back there and check it out because that season really lays a foundation that this season is, is going to build on. So make sure you get back there, listen to those episodes in preparation for this new season. Now, in this new season, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be exploring Adventism for a post-church culture, Adventism for a post-church world. What, what does it look like to be a, a bona fide, authentic um, Adventist community with an Adventist message in the context that we presently inhabit, in this secular milieu that we presently inhabit with, with its absurdity and its relativity and its re-enchantment and all of these bits and pieces that are just flowing and fragmenting through society, uh, what does it actually look like for us then to proclaim the three angels' messages, right? Or, or uh, you know, to, to use some other sort of old school phrases, right? The present truth or the remnant message or, you know, the, the, the apocalyptic warning. Like, what, what does that look like? And for those of you who followed my podcast for any number of months or maybe years, you know that like I fundamentally love Adventism. I'm, I'm not a liberal uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, some people think I'm liberal because I don't like hymns and I don't like wearing suits and you know, well, let me rephrase that. I do like hymns. It's just, they're not my favorite thing. Um, I, I prefer contemporary music. I, I can't, I don't even own a suit. Uh, if I don't have to wear a tie, I, I desperately avoid wearing one. It's not, not my thing. Um, I speak differently. I don't use the typical Adventist jargon, uh, the, the phrases and words that have become sort of buzzwords within Adventist subculture. And you know what I mean by that is, is some, some people, they're just not satisfied with a sermon unless you're saying things like the remnant truth and, you know, uh, uh, the spirit of prophecy. Like, I just, I don't use phrases like that. They're, they're not, <laughs> they don't make sense to me. They're not my thing. I have used them in the past in, in communicating with conservative Adventists, but they don't, I just, yeah, they just always feel really weird to me. So I don't really use those types of phrases when I preach. Um, I'm just, yeah. So, so some people just kind of on that superficial level kind of walk away thinking, oh, Marcus must not, not you know, be a, a bona fide Adventist. But the truth is, uh, theologically speaking, I'm actually quite conservative, you know? Like, I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> I'm, I love Daniel. 
I love revelation. Um, I love the gospel and especially the way in which the sanctuary frames the gospel and gives it this panoramic view that is really unique to, to the Adventist consciousness. Like I love that stuff. Absolutely love it. And I want to, I want to, I want to preach that, you know, I want to communicate that to the culture. And so the question for me isn't how do we dumb Adventism down to make it palatable, but rather how do we take the depth and the eccentricness of what makes Adventism authentically Adventism and communicate that eccentricness and that depth and that color to a world that has moved beyond traditional modes of religion, traditional modes of propositional ideas and truth. How do you then take this narrative, which claims to be the present truth, right? And which claims to have this perspective on God that is solid because the great controversy is rooted in lies about God. And so we then come to the front with our, with our narrative, with our message, with this proclamation that, hey, you know, we're here to, to, to reveal to you the truth about God, about his character, about his heart. And for us, within our conversations, that can sound like a really nice thing and it can sound really enthusiastic and really beautiful. But in the mind of a post-church culture, of a culture drowning in absurdity, in relativity, um, the, these phrases are actually offensive. They're cultish. They're weird. They're bizarre. Um, they, there's nothing winsome about them. And so what I want to do in this season is I want to explore, like, what does it look like to be an Adventist community of faith that is fully communicating the story that we've been called to tell, but do it in a way that actually makes sense to the world around us. And in order to do that, the very first thing that we have to do is we actually have to step back from the world around us and take a look at us once again. Take, take a look at what, what we are all about and uproot some myths and get rid of you know, some bad beliefs that sort of circumnavigate our communities and our churches and even our collective ideologies and, and really hunker down and say, like, what does it really mean to be this movement, this Advent movement? What does it really mean to, to occupy this space in time? And once we know what the center of that is and, and, and what it represents and what it's all about, like what is Adventism fully all about? Once we know that, then we can ask the question, all right, how do we reframe this for the culture? Now, some of you might be thinking, but, you know, I mean, maybe we should start with the culture and then, you know, do the other thing. But here's the problem with that. The problem is if we don't start by clearing the table a little bit and getting rid of some of the garbage, what ends up happening is when you talk about reframing Adventism for the culture, what some people are going to hear is, oh, I'm going to take my hatred of Catholicism and just reframe it a little bit for the culture. I'm going to take my, my conspiracy theories and just reframe them, make them a little bit more palatable for the culture. Whereas what I'm suggesting is maybe that stuff shouldn't be there at all, right? So when we reframe from the culture, we want to reframe from Jesus. We want to reframe from our true center, right? With a true North Star. We don't want to reframe from mythologies and, and, and lies and toxic ideas 
that have infiltrated our movement, we actually want to get rid of those and reframe from a place of balance, from a, praise, from a place of, of gospel and kingdom. And so that's why in this series, what I want to do to begin with is I want to kind of get rid of some of the garbage. And some of you might be thinking as well, hey, didn't you do that in the, um, in the series that you did, you know, a few, few months ago, I did that series, uh, what was it called? Um, I can't remember what my own series was called. Um, cringeology is what it was called. There we go. I remember now. Cringeology. So in the cringeology series, what I did was I explored, you know, seven false beliefs that kill Adventist mission. And so, yeah, you can go back to that and you can explore that in way more detail because what I'm going to do in this series is a little bit, a little bit, you know, more low key. Um, but if you want to go like really in depth, definitely check out, go to thestorychurchproject.com slash podcast and you, you can listen to the, um, the cringeology series there. I believe it's about seven episodes um, and, and, and that explores it in more detail. But I definitely want to revisit some of that because the truth is that we cannot reframe Adventism if the Adventism that we are reframing is a perversion of what Adventism is intended to be. So we need to get back to the original, right? We need to get back to the, to the beauty of, of what Adventism is at its core and then ask the question, all right, how do I take this and frame it in a way that is going to be meaningful to the people who are hearing what I am saying? So that's what this series is going to be all about. Now, before I begin, um, just do a few more introductory thoughts and um, just to lay the foundation. I do want to make, um, I did want to say a few things. Number one, a huge thank you once again to the, to the, the, the patrons who are supporting the Story Church podcast. You guys have no idea how helpful it is uh, to, be able to, to, to be able to have that support that enables me to reach more and, and promote more. Because the bottom line is, you know, just because you put something up on the internet, and send it to a few friends doesn't mean people interact with it, doesn't mean people see it. Uh, internet, you know, uh, social media runs by algorithms and the algorithms are increasingly making it more difficult for online ministries, startups, uh, businesses, they all sort of fall into the same category. It makes it more difficult for us to reach an audience. And so bottom line is you kind of have to spend some money to reach people. And what I really love about the patrons is that by supporting the Story Church Project, what you're saying is we really love this vision of Adventism that you're painting and we want more people to encounter it. And I just want to thank you so much for that because I want more people to encounter it. And it's just awesome knowing that there are others who also want more people to encounter it. And we can do this together. Uh, so thank you guys so much. If you want to support the Story Church Project, just head on to thestorychurchproject.com. On the top of the page, you'll see some links and one of them is support. You just click there and the rest is, is explained there. Uh, so thank you guys so much. Uh, also, as you guys have been seeing on my page for the last few weeks, um, the, the, the road, a journey through the narrative, narrative of scripture, uh, the Bible study set that I've been working on for the last five years is coming out. It's coming out, guys. It's nearly here. It's nearly here. Um, the design is all done. The editing is all done. At this rate, I'm like, man, if there's any mistakes, any spelling mistakes or whatever left in this book, then they deserve to stay there because we've edited this thing so much. Um, so so that's, that's coming out real soon. And uh, I'll be posting some things in the coming weeks that explain that, uh, you know, in a little bit more detail so people know what exactly um, they're going to be getting, but you're going to be able to purchase the book print from Amazon, which has the entire study set included within the book. And you're also going to be able to purchase licenses to reprint the study set 
at your convenience. You know, it's, that's probably going to be most useful for local churches who want to use the material to run a seekers class, for example. And so purchasing 15 copies of the book for a seekers class on Amazon is going to be way more expensive than getting the licenses to just print the file for 15 people, right? So, so keep that in mind too. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's up and coming. So I've made some options there. Um, also, I, I wanted to apologize as well, you guys, because I realized uh, it was too late to do anything about it, but I realized that the very last episode of um, Understanding the Secular Mind, the audio was a bit wonky. Uh, man, I'm so sorry, you guys. It, it sucks when you've been waiting, you know, all this time. Final episode. It's finally here. I get to sit down and enjoy it, and then the audio is kind of off. So I do apologize for that. Did the post-processing. Did not pick up any issues on, on my desktop. And then once it was live and I had already closed the post-processing file, so I couldn't go back and, and tweak it, I kind of noticed it sounded kind of weird. So anyways, I apologize for that, guys. And uh, hopefully <laughs> it doesn't happen again. Um, and in this season, I'll be a little bit more pedantic with my audio quality. But anyways, okay. So with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and turn our attention to this idea of Adventism for a post-church culture. Like I said before, guys, I love Adventism. And as I go through this series, what you're going to find is that it's really built off of one of the books that I sell in, at the Story Church Project store. The name of the book is Weird Volution, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation. And basically the material in this podcast is built off of that book. Uh, so if you've read the book, you're going to get, you know, probably a more updated, expanded edition of it um, in, in the podcast series because it's been some years since I wrote the book. So obviously I've, I've got a few more thoughts that I can share. Um, if you haven't read the book, if you haven't bought the book and, and you'd like to, to read it or get it for someone else, uh, it's, an, it's an amazing resource that you can use in your local church with a team. And really, that's what the podcast series is going to be like as well. So I explained that in a little bit, but I just wanted to let you guys know, if you want what I'm going to be discussing here in print, you can go to the storychurchproject.com slash store and purchase the book, Weird Volution, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation. You can get it as an ebook or you can get it print off of Amazon. So like I said before, uh, I love Adventism. It's, you know, it's narrative, it's theology, it's it, it, what it's communicating is in my opinion, incredibly brilliant and relevant in the way in which it interacts with the questions that people are asking, especially in the post-church age. And so really what we have to do is listen to those questions and listen to that language. And this is what we talked about in Understanding the Secular Mind. Listen to the culture long enough that we actually know what language they're speaking. And, and this is a challenge that I encounter even among missional Adventists that kind of weirds me out. Um, even among missional Adventists, we, we forget one of the key elements of mission to any culture is translation, all right? Translation. Talk to any missionary. Translation is absolute key. Translation and contextualization, right? Which is, they're not exactly the same thing, but they, they go hand in hand. And so when you contextualize something is when you're taking an idea and you're saying, all right, I'm going to reframe it so it makes sense to you. So for example, there's a story about the missionaries, and I've shared this in my podcast before, missionaries who were working with a tribe and they couldn't figure out how to explain the gospel to the tribe uh, in a way that made sense to the tribe. And, and so one of the missionaries actually observed that there was a custom among those tribes. When one tribe offended another tribe, they would take one of their children and they would gift it to the other tribe 
to bring peace between the tribes. And that child was called the peace child. So that child would be gifted to the other tribe and he would be raised as a member of that other tribe. That child was called the peace child. And so the missionary realized, hey, if I frame the gospel within this, within this concept of peace child, that Christ is God's peace child through which he makes peace with us, it'll make sense to them and it worked, right? So that's contextualization. Translation is a little bit different. Translation is where you literally have to learn the language of the people that you're speaking with. And so you can't go there with a King James version of the Bible and say, hey everyone, learn to read this. No, you have to translate the gospel, the Bible into their language. And that can be tricky at times. So for example, there are cultures in this world that have never eaten bread. Bread doesn't exist in their, in their, in their world. It, it doesn't exist in their consciousness. It's, it's, it, you know, bread in, in our culture is a symbol of sustenance and life. Um, you know, there's this sort of, uh, you know, we, we love our sandwiches and our burgers and, you know, bread is very common in our culture. So when we read, uh, when we read a text like I am the bread of life, it makes perfect sense to us. But how do you translate that text to a tribe that has never seen bread? Right? Or how do you translate it to a tribe that, you know, uh, the, the, the lamb of life, you know, the, it's like they've never even heard of a lamb. They have no idea what a lamb is, right? And so you can sit there and be like really, um, you know, rigid and say, well, that's too bad. That's just what it says. And, you know, you're going to have to learn what it is. Or you can translate, right? You can translate it in a way that's going to make sense to them. Uh, maybe they have no idea what bread is, but they know what rice is, and rice is the sustenance that they depend on. Um, and so you may have to translate the text in a way that uses that as the means through which they can discover what the text is really about, that Jesus is our sustenance. It's, got, it's not really got anything to do with bread. It's, it's about Jesus being our sustenance, right? He's the bread of life. He's the sustenance of life. He's the source. And so you want to communicate that in a way that makes sense to them. So that's the translation. And that's exactly what we're doing in post-church mission. In post-church mission, we must contextualize, which we talked about a lot in understanding the secular mind, but we must also translate. And this means, this means, listen to me very carefully, if you are into cultural contact, you got to learn a new language, you guys. You have to learn a new language. You have to learn new words. You have to learn new phrases. You have to learn new ways of expressing and understanding the world, just like you would do if you were to take a plane off to a tribe somewhere in the middle of the Amazon forest, and you have to learn a new dialect and a new language so that you could translate the word of God for them. You have to do that here in the West, you've got to learn a new language. You've got to learn a new way of thinking and a new way of relating to people. If you insist in communicating to the culture according to the language that you are familiar with, then secular mission is not for you, all right? Now, is it difficult to learn a new language? Absolutely, it's difficult. I mean, you know, I, I can imagine that those missionaries who go to other places of the world where English is not the language and they have to learn this new language, that that is a challenge, that that is a struggle, that that takes a, a, a lot of intentionality and focus to be able to learn that language. And it's not just sitting down reading a book about the language, it's actually communicating with the people and, 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 and fumbling through until you kind of get good at speaking that language. It's no different when it comes to secular outreach, right? There are words, there are phrases that we as Christians use that are deeply offensive in, in, in secular context. Words that come with so much baggage 
that they don't even mean to them what they mean to us. And so we have to learn what those are. And we have to learn the words that they're using. How do they define certain things? What does it mean in their world? And there's no like real vocabulary list that I can give you because again, culture is fragmented and it differs from place to place. But when you're actually having these conversations and investigating these things, you're looking at concepts and ideas that people are trying to, you know, kind of complicated ideas that they're trying to conceptualize into something simple. And so they'll use certain words. So for example, postmodernism is, uh, is a phrase. It's a word that tries to ca capture a mood. And what does that mood mean? You know, you have words like enthusiasm and cynicism uh, that are very deeply entrenched within the postmodern mood. And when you get to metamodernism, right? Some people look at that and they're like, dude, you know, I don't have a PhD. Why, why am I even bothering with this? You don't need a PhD. I don't have a PhD either. Guys, I have a bachelor's in theology. I don't have a master's. I've never studied philosophy. I don't have a, a, a master's of divinity. I don't have a, a doctorate. I don't, I've got a bachelor's from Southern Adventist University. You know, that's it. I didn't learn any of this stuff there. Uh, the only thing I learned was biblical languages and some basic theology and preaching. Like, that's it. Well, I did take a personal trainer course, so I kind of learned a little bit of that. But again, the point is, None of this stuff that I'm talking about, I didn't learn any of this in school. This is merely me immersing myself in this culture, immersing myself in its artists and its influencers and its everyday people to try and understand a little bit of what in the world is going on here and the languages that they use, you know, the social justice language. Uh, that, that's a, you don't have to agree with it to understand that there's a language, that there's phrases, that there's ways in which people communicate certain things. Uh, the language of re-enchantment, right? Like what is, what is re-enchantment? For some of us, we hear words like that and we're like, that's it, I'm done. That's too big a word. But if you, if you love this culture and you want to learn how to reach this culture, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a language, right? It's, it's phrases. These are the things that people are not necessarily saying on a regular basis. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Most postmoderns probably never even heard the word postmodern. And in fact, I find that we Christians talk about postmodernism more than postmoderns talk about postmodernism. But the, the bottom line is it's still an integral part of the language that communicates what's going on and how we can understand the cultural consciousness at a, at a profound level. And, you know, so learning what kind of words are triggers and what kind of words are meaningful, especially for people who are seeking and, you know, what kind of language they're using in, in, in the era of re-enchantment, right? Like the language that's being used to communicate spiritual thirst and spiritual desire, etc. Um, so I'll give you guys an example. I had a friend of mine who's um, been struggling with drugs for many years. He's been coming to church and this year he had a really bad time. And so he hasn't been to church hardly at all. And I, I, he just started coming back to church. I saw him this last Sabbath and he said to me, hey, you know, the reason why I didn't want to come to church is because the church is this sacred space of positive energy. And I was in such a bad place in my mental health that I didn't want to bring that negative energy here and wear people down. Right now, I understand that because I understand the language that he speaks as being someone who's post-Christian, even though he's been seeking God, he's been baptized, um, he loves God, he wants to follow God, but he didn't grow up with our Adventist lingo. So when he says things like sacred space of positive energy, if you're not familiar with the culture, you're going to walk away thinking this guy is a new age mystical, you know, but he's not like at all in any way, shape or form. 
Um, th that stuff doesn't interest him. He's never looked into that stuff. He's never explored that stuff. Uh, he has no clue what Buddhism or Hinduism or Eastern mysticism. He doesn't know any of that stuff. And I know because I've had many years of knowing him and exploring the spiritual journey with him. But he's communicating in this language which is familiar to him. You know, he's, he's not going to sit there and say, I know that the church is a holy place of the people of God. Like, that's how we would talk. But he would talk by saying, it's a sacred space of positive energy. Um, and so, you know, I took the time to explain to him a very basic idea, which we've probably talked about a thousand times and we kind of puke now when we hear it, that church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And I said, you know, the, the church isn't a temple of positive energy, bro. It's, 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 it's a hospital for broken people. And he literally looked at me. He was like, I never thought of it like that, man. Like, wow. Okay. He's like, man, that gives me a whole new way of, of looking at things. I'm, I'm, I, I'm messed up, man, but I'm going to keep coming because of what you just said. And, you know, it's, it's just, again, I'm just using that as a basic, really basic example of how the language is just different. And if you don't know how to communicate in that language and you don't know how to express yourself in that language, it's very difficult to make meaningful connections with people using a language that Adventists in the 1950s were really familiar with. Um, using that today, it just goes right over people's heads. So in the same way that words like re-enchantment or post and meta-modernity might go over your head, words like spirit of prophecy and present truth and word of God go over their head, right? So we have to, as the missionaries, we have to do the extra work of translating and contextualizing. Um, so want to make that really clear because we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit through this series and, and, and upcoming series as well. But I just want to come back to this idea of, of really loving Adventism and loving what Adventism communicates as a narrative, as a system of truth, um, as a story, really, a story of God's character, a story of God's heart, a story of who He is. And I, I love that because I didn't always know that. Like many of you, I was raised in a really uh, traditional, conservative version of Adventism that was more concerned with rules than with people, that was, was, was passionate about structures and systems and customs and traditions, but not so passionate about, you know, the things I've just been talking about, contextualizing and understanding others and listening to others. And so the context in which I grew up in was, was rigid and and stoic and 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 very strict not not saying it was like horrible you know i got good memories and good people but for the most part i have a very similar experience to maybe a lot of you listening to this where adventism really turned me off and i'm going to talk about this more um in the next episode but you know i did get to the point with like the legalism and the cynicism and the apocalyptic fear mongering and all that where it was just like, I was really beat up. I was really beat up spiritually. I was really beat up emotionally, psychologically. I was just a mess. And as I began to deal with real problems in my life and I began to confront real issues in my life, what I found was that my theological foundation, my faith foundation was so toxic and unhealthy that rather than helping me navigate those difficulties in my life, it became part of what dragged me down and nearly destroyed me. You know, I was suicidal for a time, um, passively suicidal. 
And, uh, it, it, you know, I'll talk about that more next week, but it was, a, it was, it was horrible, man. And, and so if anyone has an excuse to, you know, sit back and say, Adventism sucks, Adventism is anti-gospel and it's anti-Jesus. And let me publish a book about how evil it is and how terrible Ellen White is. Cause believe you me, so many of her writings were misused and really messed me up. And, and my wife had that experience as well. Um, really, really messed us up. So Look, if anyone has an excuse to say, you know, Adventism is the worst, it's a heresy, it's a cult, it's me. But by the grace of God, I was able to look a little deeper and, and really, I wouldn't even frame it that way. Jesus revealed himself to me. Jesus revealed himself to me, not in a moment of euphoric, you know, uh, transpersonal revelation, but he revealed himself to me slowly over time as I suffered through this season of my life. And I, and I ultimately came to see Jesus emerging throughout our story. And then one day it just hit me, Jesus is our story. And so once I saw Adventism through, through Jesus, everything started to change. And the more I saw Adventism in light of the heart of Jesus, the more amazed I became. And I was studying all different kinds of theological traditions within Christianity, within Protestantism. And honestly, guys, I say this in, in the most politically incorrect way. Adventism provided me the most beautiful story of God that I could find. And I believe it's the most beautiful perspective on God that the world has ever known. And Jesus is the center of that story. Now, you know, in conversations, I'll have people say to me, oh, you know, what do you mean? Adventism is the best story of God. The Bible is the best story. And it's like, you know what? I get that. I get that. But we have a problem that we have to deal with, all right? We have a problem that we have to deal with. The problem that we have to deal with is that there are thousands of denominations out there who all claim the Bible, and they're all telling a different story of who God is. They're all presenting a different version of His heart. And I'm not saying that they're all wrong and I'm right, because that's not even my style. I'm, I'm not into that stuff. I can't stand arguing about religion. Do not waste my time with that. Um, but all I'm saying is that of all these different denominations and religious groups trying to portray the character of God or telling stories about God, I found that the, the narrative communicated through Adventist theology tells that story the clearest in the most biblical way and in the most beautiful way. Now, is it perfect? No. Does it have every answer? No. Are there things we have to unlearn? Yes. Are there things we have to learn afresh? Yes but it's the best that I could find. And so for me, I just really, really decided, even though I have all this baggage and this bad history with Adventism, at some point I gotta let that go. I've gotta let that go. I've gotta, I've gotta let that past go. I've gotta let that trauma go so that I can actually move forward and do something meaningful in the world with the story that, that God has, has given me. And so, or given us, really, as a tribe. And so, you know, what does that have to do with Adventism for a post-church generation? Um, I suppose the answer is basically what I said before. We have to discover the centrality and all-sufficiency of Jesus in our narrative. Because when we discover the centrality and all-sufficiency of Jesus in our narrative, we can then remove the parts that we've added on that don't belong there, remove the toxic bits, remove the heretical bits, remove the cultish bits, and we're left with this naked story, this organic tale of God's heart 
that we then can take that and say, all right, now let's articulate this to a world that has moved beyond religion. Um, and I think the bottom line of that in, in, in that experience is, is two things. Number one, it's recognizing the centrality, as I said, of Jesus in our story. But number two, and this is what we're going to spend most of our time on uh, as, as we explore this in the upcoming episodes. Number two, one thing I couldn't get away from and one thing you're not going to get away from, this is going to be central to this entire conversation, is this. Adventism as a theological system is eccentric. It is, you guys. I wish I, wish I, could, I wish I could say, hey, you know, we're no different to those people. We just go to church on Saturday. No, we're so different. It's so eccentric, and we're going to see that. But it's so eccentric in like a really radical, cool way. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to exploring that with you guys. Now, I do have a warning for you guys as, um, as we get to the conclusion of this introduction. And the warning is this. If you're listening to this podcast series... And you're hoping that in this podcast series, you're going to walk away with this brand new method of reaching secular culture, then please turn it off. All right. Like I'm giving you permission right now that I'm giving you permission to knock the listens on my on my uh, what do you call that thing? The, the thing that you look at that tells you how many listens your podcast has had the um, uh, analytics. I'm giving you the, 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 the right right now to like ruin my analytics so that instead of a hundred listeners, I've got like five. All right. Because I am not going to give you a method. All right. So if a method is what you're after, this is not what this episode, this podcast, this pot in our series is going to be about. It's actually going to be about the opposite because our church and its leaders, and I put myself in this category, we've been conditioned to believe that transforming our churches is a matter of methodology. That's all it is. It's just a matter of methodology. And so we read all the latest books on church growth and we try to apply its principles to our local churches. And, you know, I did this and you know what I ended up with? I ended up with a bunch of really well-organized people who were just as spiritless and lifeless. Why? Because methodology isn't the savior, you guys. Methodology isn't the savior. True church transformation doesn't come from methods in, in the same way that a beautiful marriage is not achieved by merely applying marriage expert advice. A marriage thrives when it's fueled by love, by a story, by a, a, a beautiful romantic narrative of self-sacrifice and self-abandonment and, and serving one another in love. That's where true love really begins to thrive. And so, you know, the advice of experts is helpful, obviously, but it's only helpful when love is the story around which everything else orbits. Now, if you get rid of that love at the center and you keep the methods, then you're going to end up with a, with a couple who live like civilized roommates. But when love is at the center, you get passion, contagious passion that redefines their existence. And I believe that church is like that, you guys. A lot of people miss this, right? Like we think that if we just get the latest book and strategies and methods and boom, you know, we're going to have a revived church, but it doesn't ever really work. And the reason why is because we've skipped the most foundational step. And that is our love story as it is in Jesus. So just a warning, you guys, if you're searching for a method, man, you're not going to get it in this series. Um, I'm not anti-method though. 
And I do think that there are methodological things that we can look at. So uh, in, a, in, you know, in two or three seasons, I'm going to take a look at some of that. But if you can't wait for that, um, again, the storagechurchproject.com slash store. There's a book called Heartbeat where I share a really, really simple method that I've used in, in redesigning local Adventist churches. Um, but here's the thing, going back to this idea of love story, right? Once this love story is introduced and embraced, that's where real change can actually begin to take place, real meaningful change that transcends methods. And later on, as you add method to that, now you've got the method that orbits around the mass, the center of the love of God. And when you really think about it, every challenge that you face in your local church boils down to people putting themselves above the mission. That's it. Like nothing else is at play. People putting themselves above the mission. And so then we mission-hearted people, we go in there and we try and change things, right? And, and, and no one wants to change the things that they're used to, the things that they're comfortable with. So they resist. And so then what do we do? We nag and we stand at the front and pester people with how we all need to be involved and it's a team effort and Jesus is coming soon and blah, blah, blah. And trust me, that's pretty much all they're hearing. But what if there was a better way, right? Like what if we could redesign our local Adventist churches by focusing, by centering ourselves in our love story in Jesus. We could see real transformation take place. Now it's not gonna be like a magic pill. You go from being a dead church to a mega church in, in like a week, um, but it, it'll be a slow process. And by the way, mega church isn't even a thing I aim for. I was just, that was more of a joke. But you know, you can have a revived church, and it, but it'll be a process, but the process will be centered in the spirit, right? In the person of Jesus, not in strategies and methods. Now, I gotta wrap this episode up. It's been fun, guys. It's been fun introducing this, and it's been really difficult holding back on uh, things I wanted to go deeper into, just because I know in the next few episodes I'm gonna be doing it. But here's the thing. You might be asking, all right, so got this podcast series coming out, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation. How exactly can I use this? Um, how exactly can I use this to bring change, to bring transformation, both for myself and my church? So I want to focus on, on, on that as we conclude. Number one, all right, number one. This podcast, this Padanar series, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation, it's not here to give you more theological mumbo-jumbo to argue about. I've put this podcast series together to take you and your church on a journey of discovery. So if you really want to get the most out of this series, then don't listen to it alone. All right, Make this your first task. Find at least one other person that you're going to listen to this series with. Don't listen to it alone. It doesn't mean you have to be sitting in the room together at the same time listening to it, because that might be impossible, but you send it to someone and say, look, I'm gonna listen to, to this, and I really want us to listen to it together so we can talk about it. I don't wanna listen to it alone, all right? Find at least one person. It could be your pastor, it could be your elder, it could be your youth leader, it could be your, your partner. I don't care. Find one other. Do not listen to it by yourself. Find one other person that you listen to this series with. 
And if you can get a group, even better, right? If you can get a group that's like absolutely amazing, a group at your church and say, look guys, just gonna listen to this. The episodes are gonna be coming out weekly. We listen to one episode a week and we can get together and, and, and talk about, I'll give you some questions at the end of each episode um, that you can wrestle with as a group because I really want this to be more than just information. I want you to actually be able to do something with this. Now, if you don't do this, chances are you're gonna walk away from this podcast series with more information and that's it. Nothing's gonna change. So if you want change, do this in community. All right, do this in community. That's number one. Number two, guys, I'm not infallible. All right, I'm just, you know, I'm just this guy, this Latin guy from New Jersey with a bachelor's. Like, I'm not that smart. I'm not infallible. So if at any point in this podcast series, you hear something that theologically, you're kind of like, eh, I don't really agree with that. Don't get hung up on it. All right. And don't get hung up on it in your groups or in your conversations. You might say, yeah, look, I didn't really gel with that. But the main thing that I want you to focus on is the overarching theme that I'm sharing here. If you get bogged down in silly debates, this whole thing is pointless. All right. But, you know, it's not up to me if you get bogged down in silly debates, because I'm telling you right now, I'm probably going to say something dumb. All right. So it's up to you if you want to make that your focus and derail the process. Or if you actually want to say, okay, you know, I didn't really agree with what Marcus said there. I think there's a better way of looking at it. But let's stay focused on the real big picture at hand. Um, so that's my number two. Number three, if your church culture, if you currently attend a church that happens to be super argumentative, ultra conservative, borderline fanatical, then okay, maybe don't give this podcast series to, to your leaders because they're not going to be prepared to engage with it in a healthy way. And you're probably going to end up with more headaches. So I would encourage you listen to it in that case. <laughs> and in that case only, if there's not a single healthy person that you can share this with, then yes, listen to it alone. Um, and then if you have the capacity, like if you're the pastor there or an elder, you have the capacity to preach sermons, organize a sermon series. And even if you're not like you can still organize something, right? Organize a sermon series and, uh, and, and introduce, the overarching message and contextualize the way in which I express it to them because the way in which I express it might be might not work for the, the immediate audience in which you're, you're working with in your local church. Um, so think about that. You, you may have to do that. Um, now, once some positive direction has evolved, then you can introduce them to the podcast series, even the book, um, or even do like an afternoon training session where you go over some of the content. My only warning with that is if you do an afternoon session that goes over the content of this series, chances are everyone will forget everything you shared with them within the first few weeks. The reason why the small group model is so awesome is because you get to space out your discovery over a long period of time, which allows it to sink in and take root. When you do afternoon training seminars, they don't really take root. They, they kind of come and go. Um, so yeah, so keep that in mind. Now, as I said, as I begin to wrap this up now, remember this isn't about methods and this isn't about strategies, even though those do have their place. So if you are at a place right now where you're like, you know what, I could use some method, I could use some strategy, definitely check out Heartbeat um, at the store. And I'll have some other stuff coming out in the, in the future. Um, I did have a book that I'd been promoting for the last couple of years called Story Church, which is kind of like the signature book of the Story Church Project. 
um, that really goes into you know the, the 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 way in which we can restructure and redesign a local church in depth. Heartbeat is sort of like really um, basic model, which is beautiful because it allows you to to contextualize and fill in the blanks. Uh, Story Church is a little bit more formulaic, and that's not necessarily a good thing, by the way. Um, but that's actually I've been promoting it for some time now, but it's not going to be published for a while, guys, because COVID basically took 90% of that book and made it irrelevant. So I've decided to just like hold off on that big time. Um, and in many ways, honestly, that's what I love about the book Heartbeat because the book Heartbeat is so simple that you can actually adapt and contextualize it really, really easily. And so even in a post-COVID scenario, you can contextualize it really easily. Whereas the story church model that I've been working on and sort of um, you know perfecting over the last few years, it basically law it became irrelevant uh, post-COVID. So I got to rethink all that. But um, yeah, check out Heartbeat if if you're in that space and you really need that. Uh, but to wrap things up, I really hope that this Potanara series, Adventism for a Post-Church Generation proves to be like a huge blessing for you and your local church. Just remember, guys, don't treat this as just information download. Get together in community. Listen to this together. Each each episode from here on out, not this one, but from here on out, I'll have some questions at the end you can talk about with your group. And um, yeah, and and let this, na- this journey, this adventure uh, take you to a place where your Adventism and your local church's Adventism is redesigned for mission. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up there. Good to see you again or not because I can't see you, but good to have you here. Good to have you back at the podcast. I'm, I'm happy to be back. Super stoked. And um, yeah, I will catch you next week. Take care and God bless.